Welcome to the Trail Less Travel. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, we are recording the trail less traveled as we float down the Colorado River within the heart of the Grand Canyon. I'm currently rowing an 18-foot oar boat, and across from me is Professor Sean Graham. He's a professor of biology at Sol Ross State University in Texas. Sean is also the author of American Snakes. It's beautiful. We're floating towards Whitmore Canyon right now, looking at some volcanoes on the North Rim. And it's a beautiful day. I'd just like to say thank you very much, Sean, for joining me on the Trail Less Traveled. Thanks for having me. It's a great day. You might hear the sound of helicopters flying overhead as people get carried out of the Grand Canyon. But I'm going to hand the mic over to Sean as I row down. And my first question for you, Professor Graham, is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Well, Mandela, I grew up in a small town just south of Atlanta, Georgia, kind of in the outer suburbs of the Atlanta area on the south side of Atlanta in the headwaters of a, a river called the Flint River, which flows south from the Atlanta area into the Gulf of Mexico. And so the neighborhood I grew up in was right on the edge of kind of this constantly growing urban sprawl, suburban sprawl of Atlanta. We had a nice little neighborhood with lots of kids growing up, but we also lived on the edge of a big forest, an old farm that was kind of becoming forest again, and uh, a big swamp that was associated with that river. As kids, we were growing up and we could kind of do all the normal things that kids do and run around and play sports, basketball, but I was pretty uncoordinated as a kid, and I hated those kind of games from when I was a kid. So I would often mount little expeditions and go out into the woods behind the house instead. I have a really distinct memory of going out to pass the basketball court where all the kids were playing basketball and with all of this equipment, like nets and cages and my you know, rubber boots and all this stuff, mounting this little expedition and seeing all the other neighborhood kids just looking how goofy I looked and snickering under their breath as I walked by. That kind of thing, going out and, and seeing that swamp and getting uh, lost out there in the swamp and turning up, you know, a couple of miles from home on the other side of the river and then trying to figure out my way home. I'm kind of still doing that. We get lost when I go on my kind of expeditions down to Mexico and you know, learning how to figure out your way through those kind of things could be a good metaphor for, for what science is like. Science is nothing but a series of obstacles to overcome. There's always these little logistical things you have to figure out. My childhood was a really good preparer for that. That's the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He's a professor of biology at Sol Ross University in Texas. Sean is here on this Grand Canyon expedition. As we record this, we are on the river right now, but Sean's been doing amazing interp about the biodiversity of this particular area. And this show in particular, we are going to talk about snakes. So Sean, I'm wondering about your introduction to snakes as a child. How, how did you become interested in herpetology? That's a great question. I think my first interest in reptiles and amphibians would have came from uh, my grandmother once sent me a book when I was really young, maybe only five or six. Must have been one of my first books. 
and it was on dinosaurs and I just loved this book beautiful you know color illustrations of dinosaurs paintings of them and what they would have looked like I became obsessed with dinosaurs when I was a little boy and I wanted so badly to find dinosaur bones but I lived in a part of the country where there are no there's no fossils at all it's this the Atlanta region is is just nothing but metamorphic rock and I, I actually figured that out when I was a kid, that, that I'm never going to find a dinosaur bone where I live. So I'm looking around for dinosaur bones and not satisfied with that. But then I, I found my first toad under, I think, the, like the little manhole cover out in the, in the front yard. And then I started looking around for more things. I found small lizards. And so these little kind of living dinosaurs became my fascination. A really good, suitable substitute for dinosaurs. So I would mount the little expeditions and what I was looking for, you know, I stopped looking for dinosaur bones. I started looking for amphibians and reptiles. And I was still scared of snakes though. In the neighborhood, snakes were this big kind of, uh, you know, boogeyman. I remember one of my earliest memories is of my brothers and I uh, in the swamp behind the house and we found a rat snake and, and we beat it to death with sticks. And uh, we brought it back to the neighborhood thinking that people would think we were big heroes. And instead, everybody just kind of slammed their doors and, and looked at us with weird looks. And that snake ended up in a trash can, a real waste. And I remember feeling kind of bad about that. I would have been very young, but I don't know if it was because nobody thought we were heroes or I could tell there was definitely something wrong with just killing an animal for no reason. But so I kind of had to overcome my fear of snakes when I, I started finding snakes when looking for less sinister creatures like lizards. Uh, I found a, a small racer and garter snake and eventually realized that they were nothing like what people had told me they were like. They were very gentle creatures, very shy. They're among the shyest of all vertebrates. They don't like to be looked at. They don't like to be found. They like to hide. They spend most of their time hiding. That's why you don't see them very often. If people knew how many snakes there actually were in their environment, they would probably be even more freaked out because they're, they're not seeing all the ones that are hiding under rocks and, and burrows. There's thousands of them out there and they're mostly hiding from you. They, they don't want to be found. I learned about them from experience because there really wasn't any other avenue because all the people I grew up with had the wrong impression about the snakes. And, you know, and then I started reading, you know, what I could find out about them in books and just, and they became uh, a real passion. And I think how misunderstood they were really kind of made them more fascinating to me that everyone was so wrong about them. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled and we are recording in the heart of the Grand Canyon as we float down the river. I'm holding the mic up with one oar under my knee, staring at some volcanoes on the North Rim, and we're speaking with Professor Sean Graham. Professor Graham is a biology teacher at Sol Ross University. Sean, I'd like to dive into snakes. There's a lot of history to talk about, so can you tell us the story of the snake and their evolution? The story of the evolution of snakes, their beginnings. Well, what everyone kind of considers nowadays the first fossil snake is a small skull and vertebra fossil found in really old deposits in North America. So North America, the U.S. can kind of claim the oldest snake, at least for now. Most indications indicate it was probably a burrowing species living underground, not unlike a modern sand boa. And it's from the same kind of deposits that you find dinosaurs in. So that gives you an idea how old it was, probably from some sort of floodplain deposit. And that first snake was probably a burrower and that 
if you become a burrower as a lizard, and there's no doubt that snakes are basically nothing more than a, a fancy and very successful group of legless lizards. Uh, leglessness has evolved multiple times within lizards, not just in snakes. One of those legless types of lizards became the very successful group the snakes did. And, and the question kind of becomes, why did one particular kind of legless lizard, when there's like many different kinds, you know, legless skinks, legless geckos, legless, you know, you name it, there's all kinds of legless lizards out there. Why did one particular group become so successful and so unique and so different? And the answer seems to be kind of associated with their unique jaws. Their jaw structure allows them to eat prey much larger than their own head, and all the other legless lizard groups are basically nothing more than they just eat small insects, like other lizards. So the ability of snakes to be able to kind of unhinge their jaw and swallow things larger than their own head allows snakes to become more efficient predators on lots of other things. So you can have snakes that can eat something the size of a, a small deer or a warthog or something like that, uh, some of the large snakes. And that that's not something one of the ordinary legless lizards can really do. There's a lot more detail in the evolution of snakes, but that seems to be the key adaptation that snakes have that no other legless lizard group has, and that's allowed them to, to diversify into a couple of thousand species, a few thousand species of predatory animals that feed on all kinds of things other than insects, ranging from fish and frogs to pretty tough customers that you wouldn't want to mess with without any hands, right? They don't have any hands. So something like a rabbit, can you imagine eating a rabbit without using your hands, a live rabbit? And, and snakes can do that. On the Trail of Travel today, we're speaking with Professor Sean Graham. He's a biology professor in Texas. Sean, I'd like to ask you about some of the misnomers that people uh, misunderstand about snakes. They're very misunderstood creatures, and I think, I guess the number one misunderstanding, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit already, the, the idea that they're very aggressive and very dangerous animals. That's that's just kind of not true. And it turns out, like, people have actually studied the fear of snakes. I did a lot of research on from psychologists. Not many snake biologists really look at this, but psychologists do. The fear of snakes does not appear to be innate. There does seem to be kind of an, an innate preponderance. Humans have a kind of predilection to fear snakes, but you still have to learn it, right? All it takes is just like when you're really young, maybe just a, a, an infant, if you're reaching for like a snake-like object uh, and your mom or dad kind of smacks your hand, that's enough to give you a lifelong fear of snakes, just that little thing. So there is, there's this incredible innate uh, predilection for fear of snakes, but if you never had that experience, you, you might actually never fear them. But anyway, and, and what it comes down to is that people who, you can overcome that fear. The people who have the most familiarity with snakes don't have strong phobia of snakes, right? People who go outdoors, people who see snakes in their natural environment. Those folks end up not having strong phobias of snakes, but people who, I guess, live in cities and never actually see snakes and then just see nothing but scary movies about snakes, those people will develop strong phobias of snakes. You know, if you just watch what they do instead of freaking out and running away or freaking out and immediately taking a shovel and try to kill them, you'll see that they're, they're almost always just trying to get away from you. And the idea that snakes would actually cross the distance from themselves to you and attack you is just ludicrous. The cottonmouth is the snake in North America most feared for that. And everyone seems to have a story about a cottonmouth that tried to chase them or tried to get into their boat. 
and that's my study animal for my PhD and master's research. I've handled hundreds of them, maybe thousands. I've seen certainly a, a couple thousand in the field and I've never seen anything like that. So I think that the fear of snakes is kind of unwarranted. Epic, 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 epic. Yeah, that's the sound of a helicopter. We're floating down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, and we're speaking with Professor Sean Graham. He's a professor of biology. And when we come back, we're gonna talk about his book, American Snakes. But Sean, it's now time for a song. Can you share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood adventures? Yeah, so this will be kind of a funny one because it really has nothing to do with snakes. But when I was first kind of going out on my own with cages and little nets and things like that to go find turtles and snakes, the earliest song that kind of got stuck in my head was Hollow Notes Maneater. Whoa, here she comes. Watch out, girl, she'll chew you up. <laughs> yeah, that's the, probably the first song that ever got stuck in my head. Listen, like It was all over the radio, I guess, around 1983. I guess I would have been about six years old then. That was about the time that I was first starting on my little neighborhood expeditions to look for snakes. Good day, mate. This is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Traveled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested, and manufactured in Sisters. Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade Range that grow and produce the highest quality full-spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, MANDELA, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. We're recording the trail less traveled as we float down the Colorado River in the heart of the Grand Canyon. We are floating past the remnants of ancient lava dams right now. So on either side of the river, there's lava flows. It's a beautiful day. Professor Sean Graham is the author of American Snakes, and that's the theme of this show, snakes. He has been talking to us about snakes, and actually we've found many snakes on this trip already, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I'd like to ask you now, Sean, about your book, American Snakes. My book, American Snakes, is intended to be a summary of the biology of snakes, specifically of U.S. species, United States species, uh, for a lay audience. And so this is not like a field guide that helps you necessarily identify snakes. There are plenty of those out there. And it's not supposed to be a like a manual of snakes that has individual accounts of every species. It's not like that either. I felt that doing my research on snakes from a master's and PhD research that there was kind of a an empty hole that we needed to fill for a nice book that completely discusses the biology of, of the snakes in the U.S. for a lay audience. And this kind of came about from an interaction I had with a friend of mine 
I would go visit his property when I went to study cotton miles um, in the swamp behind uh, his house. And he loved snakes, and that was actually pretty unusual because this was in Georgia where people are, you know, hate snakes for the most part. He loved them, and, and we'd talk about snakes, and I would tell him things about my study, and then he asked me a question. He, he said, where can I find out all this stuff about snakes? And I thought about it, and I thought there is no place for him to go. All the information is kind of in, in scientific journals, and that stuff is terrible to read. It's awful. Even I hate reading it. You're not going to go to the scientific literature to find out answers about snakes. So I felt it would be a great idea to kind of try to synthesize all that stuff into a readable summary. Uh, if you want to know about snake reproduction, if you want to know about their daily activities, their seasonal activities, about you know venom and how it works and about how snakes eat and what they eat, all of those kinds. Of, there's basically different chapters in this book for all of those kinds of things. And I think it, it gives you a good summary of, of the biology of snakes. I want it to be readable, and I, I think I did a pretty good job. Okay, Sean. Well, I'd love to learn a little bit about American snakes. Let's talk about the snake on the cover of your book. The cover of the book is really kind of visually arresting. It's a, it's a, a young coach whip snake. And it's staring right at you on the cover of the book. Coach whips are day active snakes that kind of are very fast and can chase lizards. They're mostly lizard eaters, although they eat a lot of other things. And the fact that they have eyes set forward in their head a little bit more than most snakes. Most snakes have their eyes kind of on the side of the head so they can see predators coming from multiple directions. A lot of things like herbivores like deer are similar in that they have eyes kind of on the side of their head so they can see what's coming. But these snakes, the coach whip on the cover, has a pair of eyes that are really shifted forward, kind of like ours are. And that gives them binocular vision and it gives them depth perception so that they can target their prey when they're, they're reaching out at them. They can even target your face if you try to pick one up. They'll actually strike. And many of those types of snake, like a coach whip or whip snake, will actually aim for your eyes when they try to strike and bite you. They're, they're not dangerous in the sense they're not venomous at all. They're harmless, but they are very bitey snakes. That is the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He is a biology professor in Texas. We are floating down the Grand Canyon, about to run a little riffle. You might hear the sound of the waves in the background. I'm rowing the boat right now. I'd like to tell you about how I met Sean. So we've been on the river for almost two weeks. We've been on this river, and uh, about 10 days ago or something like that, 12 days ago, we were camped at a place called South Canyon, and... It's a pretty rough eddy there, so usually river guides sleep on the rafts, but at that camp, we slept on shore. So I grabbed my bags and took them to shore, and I'm not super happy about sleeping on shore because there's sand there, and you never know what else could be there, I guess. Boats are safe. I went up to my bag, and it was to start looking for my headlamp, my torch. I can't find it. It's dark. I'm looking everywhere, like, you know, throwing stuff around in my bag, and all of a sudden I hear this really loud rattle right next to my face and in the darkness luckily my eyes had adjusted i saw a grand canyon pink a rattlesnake right next to my face it was laying underneath my bag just like professor graham said it was trying to get away from me so it just went away from me fast it only rattled once and i did squeak pretty loud and grabbed professor graham and maybe you can take it from there and tell us a little bit about the grand canyon pink yeah this is a really incredible encounter with this snake because it was evening it was getting dark and i was back at the raft and I was just about to set off with my snake tongs to go look around camp amongst the rocks to see this exact same kind of rattlesnake and I was literally about to pick up my snake tongs and get them unharnessed when I heard Mandela 
squeak and say, Sean, I've got a rattlesnake here. And I <laughs> grabbed my tongs and jumped off the raft, said, leave everything to me. And I <laughs> set off to go catch this thing. And it was a magnificent specimen, really pretty. I grabbed it with the tongs and everyone who was around got to see it. And it was a very gentle snake. It kind of did this explosive rattle when it was first discovered. And then it started crawling away. And this type of rattlesnake, this group to which it belongs, does that frequently. They don't rattle like prolonged rattle. They'll do this explosive rattle to kind of startle a potential predator. And then they immediately start crawling away silently. And this is great to try to confuse the predator because the predator will be still looking around where that rattle they heard was. Meanwhile, the snake is getting away. And the Grand Canyon rattlesnake, or what the river guides I love call the Grand Canyon pink, simply the Grand Canyon pink, that snake probably does it too. Although this one observation is not enough to say for sure, but I would almost bet money that they're doing the same thing that their close relative, the prairie rattlesnake does, which I've seen multiple times and has been studied in detail. And, and that's one of their escape tactics. The Grand Canyon rattlesnake is a spectacular species. They're not always bright pink, as the name implies, but they're usually at least the color of the rocks that they live on. And there are many pink rocks in the Grand Canyon, like the many granites that are found in the kind of inner gourd are a very nice pink color. And so the Grand Canyon rattlesnake is the same color as the rocks of the Grand Canyon. And it is indeed only found within the Grand Canyon. Genetic studies have kind of confirmed that this small rattlesnake of the Grand Canyon is a unique species and that it's found completely within the Grand Canyon, nowhere else on earth. For a long time, it was considered only a subspecies of a more widespread and variable species, but most genetic studies confirm these days that it's a unique species, which I think is just incredible that our spectacular Grand Canyon has its own rattlesnake. And I really wanted to see it. I, I couldn't wait. I had never seen a Grand Canyon pink in my life. I was setting out to find one, and I didn't need to go far because Mandela found one for me. Going down a rapid. I'm going to have to hold on. Woo! Professor Graham, can you tell us about snake reproduction, please? Yeah, snake reproduction is interesting. I've got another rapid coming up here, so I might squeal if I get hit by, with water, but I'll try to do my best to hold on to this microphone. Ah! <laughs> and, also, and also answer the question. A couple of unusual things about snakes and their reproduction. One of the unusual things is the male reproductive organ of snakes. It's this structure called a hemipene. Ah, oh, Jesus! Oh man, I just got splashed. And I, I'm really worried about the microphone, but I guess it's okay and it's yeah. waterproof, that's good. I'm not waterproof, but I'll dry off because it's gonna be hot. The male reproductive organ in a snake, it's called a hemipenis. It's not the same thing as a penis in a mammal. It's, it's completely derived from different tissues in a different location. It's, it's actually tucked inside out in the base of a snake's tail. So you could tell a male from a female snake by kind of checking the base of the tail and seeing if it's large. It's inside out, so when it becomes kind of engorged, it pops out and unfurls almost like you're taking a sock and pulling it um, inside out. And it's a monstrous, ugly, hideous structure. It's a two-headed 
barbed structure with spines all over it. It's really awful. There's a picture of it in my book if you're interested in seeing what it looks like. <laughs> They're able to somehow get that into the female and the spines seem to be a structure for the male to kind of go inside of a female and then hold on and anchor him there. And why exactly that would be necessary is completely unknown. And there are accounts of female snakes dragging males behind them because the males are stuck. And, uh, you know, and she's done, but the male is still holding on. And so she's crawling and, and dragging him with her. Some sort of a structure that allows them to hold on. The other thing that's interesting about snake reproduction is in many vertebrates, there's not very many cases where females mate with multiple males. There are definitely examples of that, but it's not very common. But snakes, it seems to almost be the rule, where females actually mate with multiple males, and males try to mate with multiple females, which is pretty common in, in different kinds of vertebrates. But it's not that common for uh, where females of many species, actually, we know this from a couple of lines of evidence. We know this because you can watch them. They're sitting there with multiple males courting them. And then we know this from paternity studies, where they've actually genetically determined paternity analysis. Almost every clutch of every species that's been found or, or looked at, clutch of eggs and snakes is sired by multiple males, which is pretty unusual. And we don't really understand why uh, that's the case either. So it's uh, two very kind of unusual features of snake reproduction, and we don't understand it very well at all. That is the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology, and he is also the author of American Snakes. Sean, it's now time for a song. Yeah, so we've been drinking Lone Star, the national beer of Texas, and I've kind of gotten into Texas since I've moved there. I've lived there for five years. There's music that kind of reminds me of the West, and, and it kind of attracted me to, to places like Texas to begin with. I love this band called Grantley Buffalo that was... Uh, mildly popular in the early 90s and uh, they have this great song called Lone Star Song. I often find myself singing whenever I'm off in the desert or floating down a river. We're recording the trail as traveled on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. I'm currently rowing an 18-foot boat and managing to just barely stay in the current with a microphone held up. But I'm going to pass it back over to Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and has been doing beautiful interp for us on uh, this river expedition. Sean, I was wondering, before we get any further, if you could paint the picture for the listener about what you're looking at 360 degrees around you. Can you take the listener here? I'll do my best. Well, we're on a kind of a greenish river with a pretty heavy current. If you look straight down the current, it doesn't look like you're going very fast, but if you look at either shore, you're going pretty fast. Practically too fast that you, if you were running along with the boats, it'd be very difficult to keep up. Probably impossible. The shores are lined with short vegetation of tamarisk and arrowweeds, small shrubs. And then if you look beyond that, you're getting these slopes of piles of rock that go up a couple of thousand feet uh, on either side of the river. The rocky slopes have just desert vegetation barrel cactus, ocotillo, uh, small greenish shrubs and some that look dead, gray shrubs, just small shrubs and a lot of bare ground. And a great blue heron is flying right towards us right now with looks like a big pterodactyl. Beyond the kind of slopes, there's black cliffs where the lava once flowed and then big, thick, blocky limestone cliffs up to the sky. And the sky today is blue. 
with high cirrus clouds kind of tapering off and it's remarkably cool we're lucking out big time i probably shouldn't jinx it it's a beautiful day on either side we have big canyon walls and dead ahead we've got another canyon and right behind us canyon walls so we're completely enveloped by canyons and the river is flowing through them very rapidly that's professor sean graham he is the author of american snakes this show is about snakes and we've been talking a little bit about american snakes and now i'd like to ask you about some of the snakes of the world you know i'm originally from south africa my mother's from montana father's from south africa my whole life i always thought the black mamba was the most dangerous snake in africa but you told me about this brilliant snake that you would love to see one day and i would like to ask you about that what's the most dangerous snake in africa and some of the other snakes of the world I'm glad you brought this up because I think there's a, a misunderstanding about what snakes are really dangerous and it comes down, there's a problem of kind of what criterion you use as to, to determine what you mean by dangerous. And so in my book, I talk about this. I, I feel like there's, there should be three separate criteria and then you can kind of make your own decision. And the one that I think most people are thinking of when they say a snake is dangerous or deadly is how toxic it is. So it's toxicity level. That's one way to categorize how dangerous a snake is. And this is where like Animal Planet Discovery Channel, they'll perpetuate this kind of myth that the deadliest snakes in the world are all in Australia, right? Australia does have some very toxic elapid snakes, the, the, the family of snakes that cobras belong to. It's the only continent where the majority of the snakes are venomous. Their snakes are very toxic, but they don't actually kill that many people. So there's a snake called an inland taipan that a lot of people consider the you know, deadliest snake in the world, and it's never actually killed anyone. There's no reported fatality from that snake. It's got the most toxic venom of any snake, with maybe the exception of some kind of a sea snake, and yet it's never killed anyone. So would you consider that deadly? When it comes to Africa, the black mamba is definitely a dangerous snake, right? It's a very fast snake that's pretty grumpy. Uh, you wouldn't want to corner it, right? It's got a very large mouth and very efficient venom delivery system, and it's got very potent venom, but it hasn't killed as many people in Africa as a, a snake that most people have never heard of. A small snake called a saw-scaled viper, as in to saw a log. Uh, the saw-scaled viper is a small viper kind of similar to many of our rattlesnakes that has very rough scales and when you find it it'll actually shake its whole body and make a rattling noise with its whole body and they are kind of grumpy little snakes that don't like to be stepped anywhere near and they'll they'll bite people on the foot and in this area of africa and, and the middle east where they live there's tons of people who walk around with just sandals and part of it is that, you know, there's just not very efficient medical care and it's got pretty potent venom. And that snake has been the reigning champ as the number one killer of people in that region by snakes for a long time. It, that and another Asian viper called the Russell's viper kind of trade turns year to year as the number one killer of people in, in terms of snakes. And most people have never heard of a Russell's viper either. And those snakes kill tens of thousands of people in, in the area where they live. It's a significant concern for health officials in that area. And again, most people have never heard of these snakes. I'm, I don't think I've ever seen like a nature show about the, de the actual deadliest snake in the world. And still people have no idea that they even exist, which is kind of interesting. Instead, they focus on these kind of more famous snakes like king cobras, black mambas, taipans, which actually have way fewer mortality associated with them than these other small vipers.
We're going down a rapid, so I might try to fill some more time here. So they could have three separate criteria, how toxic the venom is, how deadly it is, as in how many fatalities there have been because of the snake. And then another category I refer to as just dangerous, dangerous snakes. And this is kind of a combination of multiple factors. I just got my camera wet. It's not too bad, I don't think. Three separate categories. Toxicity, which something like an inland taipan would be number one. Deadliness, how many people they have actually killed. And the saw-scaled viper, Russell's viper, are probably the deadliest snakes in the world. And then a, another category for just kind of dangerous snakes. That, and the way, I, the way I define this actually in my book is, what snake would you least want to be locked in a closet with, right? So if you were locked in a closet with a saw-scaled viper and you just kind of backed away from it, you'd probably be okay. But if you were locked in a closet with a 16-foot king cobra, it might actually bite you and kill you, right? Because they're so grumpy. And uh, things like black mambas and king cobras live with a lethal menagerie of mammalian and bird predators that they have to defend themselves from. Things like tigers, lions, leopards that are constantly, you know, possibly going to step on them or harass them. So they're not afraid to defend themselves from big predators. And so if you're locked in a closet with a black mamba, I don't think you're coming out of that closet. Beautiful. That is the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is also the author of American Snakes. We are floating down the Colorado River in the heart of the Grand Canyon, and you are on the trail less traveled. Sean, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the evolution of venom. You know, you're talking about the connection of lizards with snakes. Can we talk about the evolution of venom and how it might be used and why it might be stronger in some species than others and how they might deliver it to their prey? Venom has evolved a couple of times um, within snakes, it seems, and it's evolved at least once within lizards. There's actually venomous lizards, and they're here in the canyon where we are now. The Gila monster has been uh, documented in the Grand Canyon, the western stretches of the Grand Canyon, and the beaded lizard in Mexico is a close relative of the Gila monster. It's also venomous. Their venom delivery apparatus is very uh, different from that of, of snakes. So it's that's an obvious, completely independently evolved venom delivery system. The venom delivery system in snakes is mostly associated with uh, subjugating prey. It's the primary function. So there's many different kinds of fangs. Uh, and some of them are better at delivering venom into prey than others. And some are actually pretty good at, mostly seem to be associated with the de uh, delivery of venom into a potential predator. So stiletto snakes in, in your neck of the woods in South Africa have fangs that kind of emerge from the side of the mouth. And they use them for stabbing their prey, but they're, they're really good at using them also for stabbing a person if they try to pick them up. Even if you try really hard to secure the head of the snake, like you might have seen people do on nature shows, they can easily stab you from the side because they've got fangs that kind of stick out from the side of the mouth, which is pretty remarkable. But most of uh, the venomous snakes have uh, delivery apparatus, uh, fangs, that are for striking into prey and kind of subjugating the prey, at beginning the process of digestion, and, and, and basically killing the prey, hopefully. You know, not all of them actually strike the prey and actually uh, release the prey and allow the venom to do all the work. They'll just you know, kind of subjugate the prey with it and then hold on to the prey and eat it. So a lot of the, the problems that develop from becoming uh, bitten by a venomous snake are very similar to what would happen if you were you know, uh, injected with like digestive juices 
of some animal. So a lot of the tissue damage that you get is kind of almost like you were, uh, your hand is being digested by the snake outside of its own body. That's a lot of that, uh, that what we call the hemolytic venom, which is tissue destroying venom. And then other snakes have kind of more fancy venom where the target of that venom is to actually quickly kill the prey, either by shutting down the nervous system or the respiratory system of the prey item. So if you get that venom in you, that same thing can happen to you. Uh, and if it's potent enough, something that's like really supposed to be a venom that's supposed to kill a mouse quickly before it can bite the snake can actually incapacitate something the size of a human. It'll take a lot longer because you're a much bigger animal than a mouse, but some of the really toxic snakes can potentially cause you to go into respiratory failure within uh, 30 minutes or so. Most North American snakes don't have venom that potent, but some of the ones that we've been talking about, things like black mambas, crates, they can cause significant systemic damage and neurological damage very quickly. That makes them very scary. You don't want to be handling those snakes unless you absolutely have to. That kind of leads me to my next question, Sean. Um, as a biologist, herpetologist, can you give us some advice as to what you might do should you find that you're bitten by a snake? If you're bitten by a snake, a venomous snake in the U.S., you're probably going to be fine. Uh, the statistics show that you know snake bite mortality is among the smallest sources of, of risk in the U.S., for at least for fatalities. Only about 8 to 12 people a year are actually killed by venomous snakes and in the United States, yeah, uh, and that puts them on kind of the same level as like bee stings. It's very, in fact, it's lower than bee stings and lightning and things like that. In the other areas of the world, it's a lot more, but in the U.S., if you get bit by a venomous snake, you have a very good chance of surviving, partly because the venomous snakes we have don't have really, really toxic venom that can really put you into the systemic damage right away, uh, respiratory failure. Only a, a handful of our species could have venom that can do that. And the other thing is that we, we've got pretty good antivenin and access to it in our country. So th what you do if you get bit is go to the hospital or uh, call 911, get to the hospital as soon as possible. If you live in a remote area, you might have to get someone to drive you there or drive yourself. In most places, you'd probably get an ambulance. But call 911 or your local poison control center. They're going to initiate what needs to happen. You get to the hospital as soon as possible, and they're going to administer antivenin as soon as possible. And late treatment is is still fine. It's better than no treatment. Uh, definitely don't not go to the hospital. That's a terrible idea. And you've got time. Uh, most of our venomous snakes are not going to, it's not like the movies where you see a cowboy gets bit by a rattlesnake and he just keels over and dies within five seconds. It's, that doesn't happen. So you've got plenty of time. You're going to probably experience a lot of swelling where, where at the point of the bite. It's going to be very painful. And that actually may end up being the only thing you experience is, is severe swelling that they'll manage at the hospital. And um, when they administer antivenin, that swelling is going to start to go down and you're going to be fine. Most snake bites result in, at worst, well, at worst, you could you could actually die. But after you survive the bite, most likely you're going to have some local pain, uh, maybe some scarring from the tissue damage, and you might lose a finger or something like that. The tissue damage may be so severe that they amputate a finger. I've seen that in you know some people who've had snake bites. Uh, they're missing like the tip of their finger or, and they've got some severe scarring and maybe permanent neurological damage uh, at the site of the bite is possible too. There is no first aid though. I should mention there's no first aid treatment for snake bite. Uh, nothing you've ever heard of about suction, cutting into the wound, icing the wound, bandaging, certainly never tie a tourniquet. 
none of that stuff works. It's all been completely proven that uh, none of that, that first aid, none of those first aid measures work. And the only thing that you can do is, is get to the hospital. Beautiful. That's the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is the, also the author of American Snakes. Sean, I want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here today on the Trail Less Traveled. It was great talking to you, Mandela. Thank you. Please tune in next week. Sean is going to talk to us about deserts of the world, in particular the one that we're floating through right now in the Grand Canyon. Sean, can we end your show with three bits of advice for the listener? Three pieces of advice, I guess, focused on snakes. If you see a snake in your house, you you have all the tools you need, even if it's a venomous species, to remove that snake from your house or from your property. You don't have to use a shovel or a shotgun. Just a trash can and and a broom. You can get rid of a snake with a broom and a trash can. You can move it just outside of your property. It's best if you don't move it super far because the snakes tend to wander if you move them really far and it may wander into someone else's property. So just kind of move it to the edge of your property or your uh, home area. And that snake is very likely to never come back to your your house again. If you see another snake in the same location, it's probably a different snake that's moving to a nice cool spot. If you see a snake on a trail, just enjoy it like you would any other wild animal. You don't have to freak out. And, and my last piece of advice along that vein is if you are if you're happen to be going along a trail or out, in the, out on the river or somewhere near your house and you see a snake, just watch what it does. Just observe it and see what it does. And I think you'll start to appreciate them a lot more. Beautiful. Sean, what song would you like to end your show with? The one that kind of brings a lot of the stuff we were talking about together. It's a local Atlanta band that made it big back in the 90s, and I guess they're still around, uh, the Black Crows. And sometimes whenever I'm late at night, I'm driving around looking for snakes, and it's get, I'm getting tired. It's 2 a.m., and I'm still... That's the way we look for snakes, and we're doing surveys. We're driving around desert roads at night with the headlights bright, and I'm, it's late. I'm getting tired. I need good driving music. And so I would listen to the Black Crows, and uh, since we were talking about venomous snakes and antivenin we could might as well play remedy namaste missoula mandela here your host of the trail less traveled an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world i'd like to thank my guest for this week professor sean graham professor graham teaches biology and is the author of american snakes This interview was recorded while floating down the Colorado River in the heart of the Grand Canyon. During our 15-day expedition, Professor Graham was kind enough to safely capture a Grand Canyon pink, which is a rattlesnake endemic to the Grand Canyon, as well as a king snake. Throughout the trip, he shared inter about ecosystems of the Southwest and the creatures who call this place home. The Trail Less Traveled airs every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. You can stream it online at trail1033.com and you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you gather podcasts. I invite you to follow the show as it's recorded on location around the world at traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is to be mindful and respectful in regards to snakes. It's probably the most proactive way to prevent a snake bite. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar, because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. <laughs>